Last time we spoke about General Patch's campaign to finally rid Guadalcanal of the Japanese menace. The Seahorse, the Galloping Horse, and the Gifu were neutralized, and now the hybrid force of US soldiers and marines were marching west. The newly created CAM Division seized Kokumbona in astonishing speed, greatly hindering the future Operation KE. At the same time, all the Japanese activity related to preparing Operation KE was prompting responses from the Americans. One of those responses was sending Rear Admiral Richard Giffen to Cape Chunter to rendezvous with Captain Robert Briscoe. Admiral Giffen was stubborn about making his rendezvous time, and this led him to make some poor tactical decisions leading to the sinking of the USS Chicago during the Battle of Rennell Island. Despite the sinking of the cruisers, the Japanese now had to push back Operation KE until February the 1st. Would this setback ruin everything? This episode is Operation KE, the evacuation of Guadalcanal. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals is an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube where I am just finishing up a multi-part series on lesser-known aspects of the attack on Pearl Harbor, which includes some unseen footage of the USS Arizona explosion. Pretty exciting stuff. Check it out. Also, just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. Over there, you can find exclusive content dedicated to things you want to hear more about, but that I can't cover on podcasts such as these. So give it a look. Last week, we spoke about the rather small battle of Rennell Island. Perhaps small in scale, but the consequences of the battle were far-reaching. Operation KE had to be postponed until February the 1st. Alongside this, there was some shuffling about for who was going to command the reinforcement unit, and eventually it landed in the hands of Admiral Shintaro Hashimoto, with Rear Admiral Koyonagi held in a reserve capacity. The 11th Air Fleet and the 6th Air Division were tasked with maintaining the cap over the reinforcement unit during the day, while the R-Area Air Force would cover them during the night. Now the skirmish at the Rennell Islands gave the IJA and the IGN a dose of anxiety, because the islands had a critical role in Operation KE. Basically, if the destroyers failed to evacuate the 17th Army on Guadalcanal, the backup was going to be some landing crafts via Russell Island. Many staff officers also sought to create a temporary garrison and a base in the Russells to be a feint. Thus, on January the 28th, six destroyers bearing 328 men went to the Russells and they were attacked by 33 aircraft from the Cactus Air Force, leading to 17 casualties but no warship damage. The day for Operation KE to commence had finally come, 
and it was to begin with a short battle over the air. Nine B-17s with their fighter escort bombed Shortland at 8.45. They were unable to damage or delay Operation KE very much, and they did lose three B-17s for their efforts. Likewise, the Cactus Air Force lost two Dauntless attacking Munda, while the 6th Air Division tossed 23 Oscars and 6 Lilies at Guadalcanal. On February the 2nd, General Patch concluded with the seizure of Kokumbona. This must mean the Japanese were all but finished on Guadalcanal. Unless more reinforcements came. He presumed they would prolong the struggle by making a fighting withdrawal to the southern coast. So, to thwart this possibility, he decided to land a battalion in a blocking position. Lieutenant Colonel George, commanding the 132nd Infantry, assembled a task force at Lunga, using his 2nd Battalion with various other units, one of which was a howitzer company of the 10th Marines. The men loaded up in some landing craft tanks aboard the destroyer Stringham. Captain Briscoe's Cactus Striking Force escorted the group as they traveled to Nuga Point. But when they were unloading, they received news of nearby enemy activity. Thus, an emergency unloading was made 1.5 miles north of Verhu. An IJA reconnaissance pilot saw this, and he misidentified the destroyers as cruisers and reported this, giving the Japanese the idea the Americans were about to challenge their first reinforcement unit run. Thus, to clear a path for Operation KE's first run, a group of 13 VALs and 40 Zeros were launched from Moon to take out the threat. At 2.43, Guadalcanal issued a Condition Red Alert, and this led to a grievous mistake. The destroyers De Haven and Nicholas had shepherded the remaining landing craft tanks two miles southeast of Sabo, but the fighter director scrambled all the Wildcats to go protect the other destroyers of the Cactus Striking Force. Thus, Duhaven and the Nicholas were dangerously exposed without air cover, with some of the VALs finding them. Six VALs attacked Duhaven, with the first bomb hitting her at 2.53 amidships on her port side. An eyewitness said this of the event. It caused a tremendous burst of flame to envelop the central part of the ship. A second bomb hit just aft of her bridge, and a third exploded her forward magazine. Dehaven jackknifed and disappeared under the waves, claiming 167 men and officers with her. Over on the Nicholas, Lieutenant Commander Andrew Hill barely managed to evade the bombs, taking his ship 32 knots. One bomb exploded near his ship's hull, killing two men and injuring seven, but the Nicholas returned the favor by taking down three aircraft, while some Wildcats came to the scene eventually, claiming a dozen kills. The actual Japanese losses would be five vowels and three zeros. And as this was going down, Admiral Hashimoto left Shortland with his cruisers and 21 destroyers sprinting down the slot. A coast watcher saw Hashimoto's reinforcement unit just due north of Vela La Vela, around 1 p.m., prompting the Cactus Air Force to toss up 92 aircraft in two waves. The first wave consisted of 17 Avengers, 17 Dauntless, 4 P-39s, 4 P-38s, and 4 P-40s with 5 Wildcats. The second wave consisted of 11 Avengers, 10 Dauntless, and 20 Wildcats. The first group claimed to sink a destroyer and 7 Zeros, while the second claimed they had landed two bomb hits on destroyers and took down 10 Zeros. 
During the actual attack, Hashimoto's flagship, the Makiname, received a near miss, while Koyonagi took charge of the flotilla. Hashimoto was forced to move his flag to the Shirayuki and gradually reined back command. The shuffling set back the force about 30 minutes, and at 8 p.m., the screening ships began peeling off to conduct a sweep ahead. While this was happening, 11 PT boats from Tulagi came in groups of 2 and 3 from Savo, Cape Esperance, and the Doma Cove to hit the reinforcement unit. Meanwhile, on Guadalcanal, Generals Miyazaki and Seno were reaching their boarding point at Cape Esperance around 8 p.m. Thousands of their men were making the grueling trek up the muddy trails through the night. Miyazaki was frustrated by the men wandering from their designated area and making too much noise. Then both he and Sano heard a single rifle shot. A staff officer was sent to investigate and he came back reporting a soldier of the 229th Infantry had reached the area supported on the shoulders by two comrades. He was unable to move any further and his comrades were exhausted. Thus, he received his comrades' assistance to commit suicide. The reinforcement unit was set to arrive for 9 p.m., but minutes were passing by 9 p.m. and there wasn't a ship in sight. Then the Japanese began hearing gunfire, and they saw fires emerge seaward. The reinforcement unit were pulling 30 knots when PT Boat 48 and 111 found them, and around 10.10 p.m. launched four torpedoes. Lieutenant Lester Gamble, the most successful PT skipper of the Guadalcanal campaign, managed to scurry his PT-48 away, fleeing to Savo, while Lieutenant John Cleggett, aboard the PT-111, took a direct hit from the Kawakaze at 10.45, killing two men. Off of Cape Esperance, Japanese floatplanes strafed PT-59, 115, and 37. PT-115 launched four torpedoes at the destroyers. PT-37 also fired four torpedoes, but was fired upon back, killing all but a single man aboard. PT-124 and PT-123 moved in to attack south of Savo. A peat of the R-Area Air Force managed to plant a bomb on the PT-123, killing four and sinking the boat, which is an incredible hit to manage. PT-124 fired three torpedoes, claiming a hit, bringing the American losses at three PT boats and 15 dead sailors. The R-Area Air Force peats began to drop flares over the Cactus Striking Force, which now was just three destroyers trying to harass over 18 IGN warships. The peat flares thwarted any chance of surprise. Six transport destroyers reached Cape Esperance at 10.40, and at 12 a.m., Kamimbo began to launch their boats. Admiral Koyanagi described the sight of the evacuees as such. They wore only the remains of clothes that were so soiled their physical deterioration was extreme. Probably they were happy, but they showed no expression. All had dengue or malaria, and their diarrhea sent them to the heads. Their digestive organs were so completely destroyed, we couldn't give them any food, only porridge. A report informed Admiral Yamamoto that the evacuees were so undernourished, their beards, nails, and hair had all stopped growing. Their joints looked pitifully large. Their buttocks were so emaciated that their anuses were completely exposed. 
and on the destroyers that picked them up, they suffered from constant and uncontrollable diarrhea. It was a shitty sight to be sure. By 1.53 a.m., the last man boarded at Camimbo, and five minutes later over at Cape Esperance. Now, because of all the delays, 1,270 men were stuck on the beach at Cape Esperance, and 300 over at Camimbo. The destroyer, Makikumo, was chasing away one of the PT boats when she was ordered to help at Cape Esperance. When she was heading over, a large explosion suddenly occurred in her hull at 1.45 a.m. It could have been a mine, or perhaps one of the PT torpedoes had finally hit its mark. Regardless, the Makikumo was dead in the water and forced to be scuttled by her sister destroyer, the Yugumo. The 11th Air Fleet launched eight Bettys over Guadalcanal during the night to keep the Cactus Air Force grounded, but six Dauntless managed to get up around midnight. Despite the enemy being illuminated quite well, the Dauntless did not manage to score any hits. At 8 a.m., the Cactus Air Force made another go, trying to hit the enemy destroyers, but failing to score any hits. By noon, the reinforcement unit successfully landed 4,935 men at Bougainville, including General Sano. The first run was a large success, and it helped boost the morale for the 17th Army HQ, as they were, quite frankly, fearing the worst. As a deception, they had the soldiers over at Cape Esperance ignite campfires and move them gradually south towards Tassaferanga over the course of two nights. Meanwhile, the 2nd Division began to march in the opposite direction towards their own disembarkment points. On February the 3rd, the 8th Area Army ordered the next run to have soldiers and sailors wait offshore in boats rather than just on the beach. Despite the success of the first run, the 17th Army was still quite skeptical about the IJN making three runs in total. This led them to dispatch orders to Colonel Matsuda in charge of the rear guard, warning him it might be likely he would have to make his own way out with a landing craft. The Japanese high command was also gravely concerned with a growing situation at Maravovo. Lieutenant Colonel George's battalion had successfully departed from Verahu, and at around 9.10 a.m., one of their patrols went into a pair of Japanese staff officers and 140 soldiers near Titi. There was a brief skirmish, and the Japanese captured two of George's men who were interrogated, revealing that around 600 of their comrades were marching around Marivovo. On the morning of February the 3rd, Matsuda's rear guard of 350 troops of the Yano Battalion were holding a position about half a mile west of Bonegi, alongside 60 survivors of the 124th Infantry. His main force consisted of the remnants of the Ichiki Detachment, which is simply incredible that any of them still exist at this point, alongside the 124th Regiment who were holding the right bank of the Seglanao River. Fortunately for Matsuda, the Americans were limiting their actions mostly for patrolling for the rest of the day, and he used this time to plan out the evacuation of his rearguard. His general plan was to lead his forces to Kamimbo, and then disembark to the Russells by boat. The next day, General Patch ordered his 161st Infantry to relieve the 147th Infantry, taking their job of advancing to Cape Esperance. The 147th would head west to an area between the Bonegi and the Umasani rivers to clear out the area. 
128 men under First Lieutenant Miano were ordered to hold the eastern bank of the Saglanau River, and Major Yano was ordered to leave a rearguard of 70 men just west of Bonegi before he took the rest of his command to advance on Maravovo. Major Yano strongly objected to performing actions at Maravovo, and that his units would be better served remaining with the rearguard. Basically, Matsuda was ordering Yano to leave his men to die at Bonegi, and Yano began to argue all his men should make a stand if it was to be so. And so Matsuda caved in a bit and allowed Yano to leave only those unable to walk at Bonegi, while he took everyone else to Seglanau at 3 p.m. For those poor men left at Bonegi, each was given two tablets of mercury by chloride. A very painful way to die. From February the 2nd to the 4th, around 15 Bettys hunted the sea around Guadalcanal, and they reported a very strong American naval presence, including carriers. Each day saw more Bettys failing to return home, one of which carried Lieutenant Commander Genichi Mihara, the leader of the 705th Air Group. Despite the presence of many American naval units, on February the 3rd, the second run of Operation KE was approved to go. Admiral Yamamoto ordered the Asagumo and Samidare to replace the lost Makikumo and Makiname on February the 4th. And Hashimoto readied his cruisers and 20 destroyers to dare another run. His reinforcement unit left Shortland at 11.30, and at 3.50 his cap of 29 Zeros clashed with over 33 Dauntless and Avengers, alongside 41 assorted fighters in two waves trying to make out against his destroyers. The Americans lost 11 aircraft, while the Japanese would lose just two. A near miss crippled the Mayakaze, forcing the Nagatsuki to tow her back to Shortland, and yet again Hashimoto was forced to change his flag as the Shirazuki's engines failed him, and thus he jumped aboard the Kawakaze. Over on Guadalcanal, seven Bettys emerged at night, dropping flares and bombs over Henderson Field, while IGN reconnaissance planes hunted down the PT boats in the area. The embarkations proceeded smoothly. In two hours, 3,921 men were loaded off. General Haikutake and his staff boarded the Izokaze, Maruyuma, and his staff got aboard the Hamakaze, and both transport groups left their screens completely unmolested up the slot reaching Bougainville by 12.50 on February the 5th. Miyazaki recounted seeing countless soldiers aboard the Aizokaze sunbathing, as they had been long denied such a pleasure. There was nowhere to walk aboard the destroyer decks. He also found a soldier holding the corpse of a friend aboard, insisting the man was still alive. On Bungeville, Lieutenant General Moritake Tanabe, the Deputy Chief of Staff of the IGA section of the Imperial General HQ, met the evacuees. Miyazaki exchanged a wordless salute with the man. Then, as Tanabe approached him, he blurted out with tears he desired for an appointment that would give him death in battle. Tanabe was quite overcome by this, and he stated, Everything about this is the responsibility of Imperial Headquarters. As Operation K was whisking away men, the Yano unit withdrew from the Bonegi area to the Singlenau River. Colonel Matsuda now took charge of the forces left on Guadalcanal as he took his men from the Singlenau over to Kemimbo. 
He ordered the Oneda unit, consisting of the remnants of the 3rd Battalion, 230th Infantry, to head west of Cape Esperance to block any American advances coming from Marivovo. Now Matsuda pondered how he was going to evacuate his rearguard. Lieutenant Colonel Sakuji Matsuyama gave him a very pessimistic view. The American Air Forces would whittle down the amount of boats available to them, and most likely they would just remain a handful. They had also received word from a tapped signal to the IJN on Rabaul that they were looking to use a minimum of three or four destroyers with an adequate number of boats to be detailed for the final run. Thus Matsuda figured any attempt to evacuate the rear guard to the Russells by boat would be suicidal. Matsuda wrote in his diary that night he doubted any destroyers would come. From his perspective, the sacrifice of 2,000 men would be much less than that of a single destroyer. Over on the American side, Colonel George's men reached TD on the 4th, and they would remain there for two days. Because of the smaller size of his command, and not fully knowing what the Japanese composition was like, well, this forced George to act quite cautiously. All of the Japanese activity had really confused the Americans, and they presumed that there was still a major offensive afoot. There was, of course, just not what the Americans were thinking. Over on the west coast, the 161st Infantry advanced to the Umasani River by February the 6th. Despite the apparent American inactivity, Matsuda feared that if they decided to make a thrust from the southern coast, this would cut him off from Kamimbo, and thus an embarkation spot. To keep this option open, he sent 100 men to move down the west coast to hold a position about 3.5 miles due east of Cape Esperance. He then ordered them to march during daylight and to light cooking fires as a deception. Later that afternoon, he received the demoralizing report that the IJN might only be able to pick up men already waiting in boats. Those on the land would have to find their own way to New Georgia. The 17th Army estimated that Matsuda had a 50% chance of getting the men out. On the 6th, senior IGA and IGN commanders met over the issue. The chief of staff of the 8th Fleet said he doubted the third run of Operation KE would be possible because there were reports of American carriers operating near Guadalcanal. Admiral Mikawa assured the IGA the IGN would do its best to meet the enemy. Colonel Konuma went to see Admiral Hashimoto to fish out his own views, and Hashimoto asserted regardless of the orders or desires of the Chief of Staff of the 8th Fleet, he would personally see to it that they evacuated all the men. Konuma requested to accompany the third run personally. Hashimoto said that this would be a stain on the IGN's record if it was said they only made a third run because an army officer's presence was aboard one of the ships. On the 7th, General Patch reported his belief that the Tokyo Express had made a successful run, landing another regiment with supplies. Though in the same report, he also acknowledged that they may have extracted the HQ of some depleted units as well. Over on the west coast, the 161st tossed patrols near the Tambelego River, nine miles away from Cape Esperance. That day, Colonel George had to hand command of his task force over to Lieutenant Colonel Ferry after he injured his leg. Upon taking command, it was Ferry's judgment that the Japanese were withdrawing to Cape Esperance, or perhaps 
even evacuating Guadalcanal. Their native guides began reporting to them that the Japanese had just abandoned Marivovo, so the task force marched upon it. At 12.40, the units assigned to guard Maripovo did abandon it, stating that it had been subjected to severe artillery bombardment, earning anger from Matsuda, who demanded they go back to prolong the American advance. They rushed back just in time to fire their machine guns at the Americans who were advancing just 2,000 yards north of Maripovo by 3.30pm. Meeting their resistance, Ferry told his men to dig in for the night. February the 7th was a day of decision-making for Matsuda. Every hour brought him more stress. The severe shelling that was reported to him at Marivovo could be heard alongside the American machine gun fire coming out of Kamimbo. Then at sundown, 26 landing craft still remained operational. It was a miracle American air forces had not destroyed them all. Compared to the experiences of the entire Guadalcanal campaign, it really did seem a miracle had occurred. Matsuda set to work organizing his boarding plan to provide for four units of 500 men each. In a very tense 45 minutes starting at 9.30pm, the remaining movable Japanese survivors of Guadalcanal got onto the boats as American artillery could be heard smashing the Seglanao area. Over on the boats, many Japanese prayed. The rendezvous time of 11 p.m. passed, greatly demoralizing them all. Then they saw the blue recognition lights of approaching destroyers. The second run of Operation KE went off very well compared to the first, but Admiral Yamamoto suspected the third would see major American naval forces that were just lurking around outside of their search plane range waiting to pounce upon them. The submarine forces combed the area without any success, as the advance force was ordered to come within 550 miles of Guadalcanal to be ready to support the reinforcement unit. Hashimoto would have 18 destroyers this time, grabbing men from two points, Kamimbo and the Russells. Despite reported sightings of the American carriers and other naval units just due south of San Cristobal, Hashimoto deported Shortland and made one last sprint to save the men of Starvation Island. 15 Dauntless, 20 Wildcats, and a single F-5A bore down upon the reinforcement unit after a search plane tipped them off. 17 out of 49 Zeros sent by the 11th Air Fleet intercepted them. At 5.55, the Izokazi was hit by two bombs to her deck and around her forward gun mount, killing 10 men and starting fires. She limped away with the help of the Kawakaze, as the Yurikaze took a near miss, doing some slight damage. 1-0 and the F-5A failed to return home. Over on Guadalcanal, the men in their boats climbed aboard the destroyers. By 12.04 a.m. on the 8th, Matsuda received word that the boarding was complete. To honor Hashimoto's pledge, the sailors had even rowed the boats along the shore waters calling out to make sure absolutely no one was left behind on the beaches. By 1.32 a.m., the boats returned and the destroyers began to depart. It was to be the last time the rising sun fluttered from a surface ship near the blood-soaked shores of Guadalcanal. On the way, Matsuda signaled the 17th Army, With the help of 20,000 souls, the recovery of 1,972 men from Guadalcanal is reported complete. 
When Matsudo reached Bougainville at 10 a.m., he reported to General Haikatake the end of his special mission, adding thanks for the 17th Army's efforts to guarantee the last run made it. General Haikatake praised Matsuda's command as rearguard. As Matsuda and Haikutake pointed out, and so will I here, the first unit to fight on Guadalcanal was the Ichiki Detachment, and they were amongst the very last to leave on the third run of Operation KE. That is simply incredible. Operation KE was an enormous feat. Over 10,652 men were evacuated with 4,935 on the first run, 3,921 on the second, and 1,796 on the third. For naval units, they had lost the Makikumo, and major damage was dealt to the Makiname, Mayakaze, and Izokaze. They had sunk the USS Chicago, Dehaven, and three PT boats, while also heavily damaging the Lavalette. For the war over the air, between January the 25th to February the 9th, the Japanese lost around 56 aircraft while taking down 53 American. Needless to say, Operation KE was a major success from a figure's point of view. The Japanese attributed the success of Operation KE to the careful planning by the combined fleet and to those men who sacrificed their lives prolonging the American pursuers on the ground. After receiving word that the reinforcement unit returned on the morning of the 8th, Admiral Yamamoto commended all units involved. The American forces at Marivovo, after observing the sea littered with small boats and debris from the night activities, set off in hot pursuit, reaching Kamimbo at 5 p.m. During these hours over the western coast, the 161st pushed towards Cape Esperance, where they ran into sporadic skirmishes with the Japanese. But the enemy they skirmished with were in extremely poor condition, mostly wounded men unable to walk. Based on the condition of the enemy, Colonel Dalton of the 161st sent a report that he believed the enemy was not defending nor delaying, but actually fleeing. General Patch concurred with this and advised Halsey that he believed the last Tokyo Express runs were not reinforcements, but rather evacuations. On the morning of the 9th, the 1st Battalion, 161st Infantry, met up with the 2nd Battalion of the 132nd at the village of Tenero. Colonel Dalton shook hands with Major Butler of the 132nd at 4.50. Then General Patch announced to the men, Total and complete defeat of Japanese forces on Guadalcanal effective 1625 today. The Tokyo Express no longer has a terminus on Guadalcanal. Now, there were of course some Japanese left behind on Guadalcanal but organized resistance was all but over by the 9th. They encountered some isolated pockets and stragglers, which occurred for a few days. And some stragglers would go on to live within the interior, with the last known survivor surrendering in October of 1947. Yeah, imagine that. Given the vast disparity in firepower between the two sides on Guadalcanal, and likewise, the severity of how debilitated the 17th Army was compared to General Patch's soldiers and Marines. The failure of the Americans to annihilate General Haikatake's men was strange. General Haikatake believed that if the Americans had focused on marching towards Cape Esperance, they would have completely destroyed his army. The failure to do so was because of two major reasons. 
The first was the relatively small size of the forces engaged in the pincer attack against Cape Esperance. After January the 25th, the American forces typically involved no more than a regiment on the western coast. After February the 1st, this was supplemented by an additional battalion on the southern coast. The second reason was the pace of the advance of those forces, which was hindered by a combination of logistical factors like rough terrain, and the Americans thinking an offensive against them was about to kick off at any moment. The logical way the Americans could have foiled Operation KE would have been something Vandegrift repeatedly had done, amphibious hooks. General Patch considered this often in mid-January, but again, all the indications from the Japanese activity was that a major offensive was about to occur, and you simply don't toss units into the abyss. As Admiral Nimitz confessed in his report, Until the very last moment, it appeared that the Japanese were attempting a major reinforcement effort. Only skill in keeping their plans disguised and bold serility in carrying them out enabled the Japanese to withdraw the remnants of the Guadalcanal garrison. Not until all organized forces had been evacuated on the 8th of February did we realize the purpose of their air and naval dispositions. It had been six months of blood, sweat, and tears. Over 2,500 square miles of jungle that was called Guadalcanal. She was in American hands now, the great prize being her airfield capabilities. Both the Japanese and Americans knew her worth, and both sides evaluated the costs and returns of trying to hold on to her. Now, as I have said quite a few times, when it comes to the quote-unquote turning points, or the turning point of the Pacific War, a lot of people generally fall victim to the allure of the Battle of Midway. Sure thing, the Battle of Midway was a turning point, but in comparison to Guadalcanal, it is arguably not as important. Midway halted the Japanese from further major operations in the Central Pacific. It thwarted Admiral Yamamoto's attempt to create more favorable conditions militarily and diplomatically to bring the Americans to the negotiating table. Midway also caused severe losses to the IJN. But did the Japanese go on the defensive? No, they did not. In fact, they immediately tossed a large-scale operation against Port Moresby. Given the Japanese had taken Port Moresby, the course of the entire war would have dramatically changed. It was a pivotal place to hold. The Japanese were not simply on the defensive footing, awaiting counterattacks from an enemy after Midway. No, they still held the initiative. If you look at what the Japanese military high command was thinking directly after Midway, you would find they all believed, falsely mind you, that the Allied counterattack would commence no earlier than 1943, probably even later than that. This was not a stupid conclusion, by the way. If we look at the situation in Europe, it did not seem possible a nation like America could allocate the many resources it did to the Pacific at that time. General Douglas MacArthur and Admiral King aggressively pushed for offensives in the South Pacific, albeit for very different reasons. MacArthur wanted to leap to Rabaul, which was obviously insane, and the Navy rightfully pushed back against this. Admiral King proposed a much more realistic idea that won the day in the end. 
It's incredible given hindsight that the American offensive in the South Pacific began when it did. They had little inland-based or carrier-based aircraft, not to mention limited amphibious shipping. Yet King's insistence produced great reward. They achieved tactical surprise and a strategic surprise of great magnitude. The Marines on Guadalcanal reaped the benefits of that surprise for a very long time. Given what the Japanese were capable of doing, their response to the landings on Guadalcanal were a terrible miscalculation. It took the Japanese far too long to figure out Guadalcanal was potentially the decisive battle that they had sought. Operation Watchtower held countless flaws that could have been exploited by the Japanese to produce a major victory. The American Navy in the Pacific could not hope to challenge the Japanese even after Midway. So much of their strength lay in the battle over the Atlantic. But Guadalcanal offered them a unique chance to boost their ground and aerial forces in the Pacific, dramatically compensating for the lack of carriers. With the victory over Guadalcanal, the Americans would develop it and Tulagi into major bases to support the Allied offensive going up the Solomons. Extensive airfields, naval ports, and other logistical facilities would be built up. The Japanese had lost the initiative for the Pacific War. Now, they would be on the defensive in the Pacific. The fall of Guadalcanal went hand in hand with the campaign in New Guinea. Japan kept juggling both campaigns and each suffered because of the other. The battle for Guadalcanal was the turning point of the Pacific War. The IGA and IGN were not beaten, of course, but now the Allies were in the driving seat for once. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I'm just finishing up a multi-part series on aspects of the attack on Pearl Harbor you might not know about, including a video on some unseen footage of the USS Arizona explosion seen from a Japanese aircraft. Also, just another friendly reminder, I myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel where I create exclusive content based on what you want to hear more about. Things I probably can't do on this podcast or others that I'm associated with. Check it out, it means a lot to me. The Allies had finally seized Guadalcanal, and now the Japanese were on the defensive footing. They had lost the initiative for the Pacific War. Things were going to dramatically change for the Empire of the Rising Sun would now look to a new strategy, that of bleeding the Allies dry. <laughs>